such is the kingdom of our Heavenly Father. It is an everlasting kingdom, and it endures throughout all generations. Such was his promise to David that he said that I will put your son on the throne, and it will not be a temporary throne. It will not be a throne like just Solomon had for the extent of his lifetime, but it will be an everlasting throne that came to fruition in the work of Jesus Christ. And it is in him that we have our confidence, in him we have our surety, because he has done the work. There's nothing else to be done. So let's pray. Lord, we are reminded that Christ has done the work. It is his sacrifice that covers our sin. And that is the work of salvation. Now, there is work for us to be done, work that you have prepared before the foundations of the earth that we should do in Christ, those things that serve the kingdom, those things that bring you glory and honor, the things of evangelism, the things of service, all of those things rest upon us but not upon our efforts by themselves for you have also given us the spirit to empower us to do what you call us to do lord you are great and you are powerful and we approach you today with a fear but also with a confidence lord a confidence that you are the one who has called us to come unto yourself to come to the throne of grace with all that we are, with all that lay upon our hearts, with our joys, our concerns, our trials, our praises. Lord, none of us here are worthy, but you welcome us. We are each guilty, but you are merciful. We are each poor, but Lord, you have riches untold to bestow upon us. You've shown us compassion and you've shown us mercy through the work of your son, Lord. Your son who who freely gives us all things because of his love for us. So, Lord, our hope is in you. Our safety is in you. All of these things rest in you because you have done these things for us and to us and in us. And now you call us to something that is far beyond what we in our humanness could ever achieve. And that is to serve. And that is to proclaim. And that is to demonstrate the things of Christ. Lord, we can't do these things outside of your power. And your word makes it clear. In your weakness, then I'll make you strong. When we realize that these things are beyond us and we turn to you and rely upon you to direct and guide and empower us, then we will achieve things that we could never have dreamed or imagined were possible. So, Lord, now we're called to live in this confidence, this confidence of your care, confidence of your power, confidence of your calling in our life, that it would be part of our character, it would be part of our very conduct, that everything that we do, we would do unto you and to your glory alone. 
So, Lord, we come here today and we think of all that has gone on in the week. We pray that we might be able to put those things aside and focus upon you, to understand that you have allowed them into our lives, whether they are trials or joys, whether they are sorrows or or excitations, Lord. You've allowed them into our lives that we might understand how you work through those and that we might come to you and be thankful for all that we face and be thankful for your power and presence as we face them. So, Lord, we come to you in the name of our Lord and Savior, the one who has given his life for us, the one who sent the Spirit to us to empower us, and the one who has guaranteed this great work of salvation in our lives. And together we pray the prayer that he taught us as we say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. It is God's wonderful work that enables us to do whatever he lays before us. So I invite the ushers to come forward that we might be reminded of his gifts and mercies to us, that we might carry out what he calls us to do.
Heavenly Father, your word says you are good to all. Your mercy is over all. And your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord. And your saints shall bless you. Today, Lord, we have much to thank you for. Your care and mercies in our lives, your provisions, your hand of providence that guides us. We pray, Lord, that others might know these same things through these gifts and offerings. The work of the proclamation of the gospel in word and deed would both be demonstrated to a degree that we could not imagine because of your blessing. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated.
Let's open our Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 22. Just a reminder, if your children have gone, you'll need to go and get them after the service. They won't come down to you. If you don't want them, that's between you and the Lord. (laughs) Okay, Acts 22, verse 30. So if you're able, will you stand with me as we read the word of God? Lord, what a great privilege it is to come to this moment, that we might open this book, written so long ago, but written with the exact words that you wanted, written in a way that would communicate the things of truth to us, both today and yesterday, and tomorrow, until that day of the Lord's return. So today we ask that our eyes would be opened by the power of the Spirit, that we might see clearly your truth and how it is we are to live because of it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Acts 22, begin in verse 30, and read into the next chapter. But on the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews... And he released him and ordered the chief priest and all the council to assemble and brought Paul down and set him before them. And Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. And do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? But the bystanders said, Do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. But perceiving that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. And as he said this, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection. That's why they are sad, you see. Okay? Just in case you hadn't heard that before, A deep theological truth, I want to get that across. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And there arose a great uproar, and some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. As a great dissension was developing, the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them and ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. But on that night, immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. In uh, 1936, there was a book that was written that perhaps some of you 
have read uh, by Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. How many of you have read that book? Some semblance thereof, okay? Um, it's sold more than 15 million copies uh, since then, worldwide, and has helped to implement ways to influence people and to win their friendship by kind of getting them on our side. Uh, and I think it has uh, application across the spectrum, but particularly in, in business, um, uh, it has been used. Now, I, I won't give you the full outline or all the points, but let me give you some highlights today on what he has to write. Fundamental techniques in handling people. Don't criticize, condemn, or complain. Arouse in the other person an eager want. Okay? He gives 12 ways to win people to your way of thinking. Let me give you some, some of the, the highlights. The only way to get the best of an argument is to avoid it. Show respect for the other person's opinions. Never say, you're wrong. Begin in a friendly way. Start with questions to which the other person will answer yes. Be sympathetic to the other person's ideas. Now, how to change people without giving offense or arousing resentment? He writes, begin with praise and honest appreciation. Call attention to people's mistakes indirectly. And let the other person save face. Okay, If you really want to get on the same people get on the same page as you uh, and get them thinking in your direction to win them in, in your point of view, then one of the ways to do it is to make them think that they have arrived at that position on their own. Okay, And then they begin to own it and they begin to get on your side um, and they become to, to view that they've come to that process through their own intelligence okay, and through their own decisions. Let me give you another aspect, another way to go about this. Winston Churchill, who was never that subtle as the things I have read, his first speech in the House of Commons as Britain's new Prime Minister. Now, when he was introduced, he was received politely, so to speak, but uh, Chamberlain, who was the outgoing Prime Minister, was given this standing ovation, for they did not grasp the, um, the uh, difficulties that Chamberlain had left them with, with his um, uh, Peace in Our Time statement. But Churchill's first speech, and then he gave three very powerful speeches dealing with the war in France, and then he gave his famous Battle of Britain speech, which would be the Battle of Britain when the tide had turned. This would show that England was in much more capable hands in the hands of Winston Churchill than they were in Chamberlain, Chamberlain's hands. And he wasted no time. He didn't attempt to win friends and influence people. He simply dropped the bomb. I say to the House, as I have said to ministers who have joined this government, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. You ask, what is our policy? And I will say it is to wage war by sea, by land, by air with all our might and with all our strength that God can give us to wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark and lamentable catalog of human crime. That is our policy. You may ask, what is our aim? Our aim is in one word, victory. Victory at all cost. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long it takes, however the road may be hard. For without victory there is no survival. 
Now let this be realized. No survival for the British Empire. No survival for all that the British Empire has stood for. No survival for the urge and impulse of the ages that mankind will move forward in its goals. Churchill was not subtle. He did not endeavor to win friends or influence people. He just wanted to save his nation from destruction. He had one purpose and one purpose only, and that was the survival of the British Empire. Sometimes you need to take a pebble and to toss it into a pond and get a little ripple, and other times you need to take a big boulder and throw it in and to get a big splash. Churchill made a big splash. Paul is making a splash. He is not concerned about winning friends and influencing people. He is, in, he is concerned with stirring the pot. He wants to shake the bushes. Uh, he wants to cause havoc in the midst of the Sanhedrin, the council. Okay, In Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, Mark Anthony said, Cry havoc and let slip the dogs of war. So the Sanhedrin asked, Who let the dogs out? And it was Paul. Okay, It was Paul who let the dogs out, and now there is havoc in the midst of the council. Now let's review a little bit to make sure we understand why Paul is here before the Sanhedrin and what this means. Remember that Paul had been arrested, brought into the Antonia Fortress there for overnight. A riot, riot had taken place in the temple courts. The Jews had accused him of disrespecting the law and bringing a Gentile into the temple courts, which was a no-no, but which was the exact opposite of what Paul had done. He was respecting the Jewish traditions by coming in and making uh, on, the, on the, probably the seventh day to uh, uh, the, uh, the washing of atonement for the uh, vow that he had taken and, and, and several others had taken. Um, the Roman garrison had rushed in to try to rescue Paul and brought him to the steps of the fortress, and Paul had given his defense, his apologia. Remember, that's where we get the word apologetics from. It is a reasoned defense for what he believes, and he gave this in front of the Jews. Everything was good until he mentioned that the Lord had called him to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And then the Jews said, oh, Paul's not worth living. And the uh, Roman uh, tribune came and dragged him off, and then he's held in the fortress. Now, the tribune really wants to understand what is going on here. Uh, so he calls the Sanhedrin, which in, in Scripture here is called the council, and to try to get them to determine if there's enough information to hold Paul over for a trial. This is not a trial. The trial comes in, in chapter 24 before Felix. Uh, this is kind of like the pre-trial motion, the pre-trial hearing, if, if it was in our culture, and to determine if there's enough information to say that Paul is guilty of something. So there's this uh, charge against Paul, and uh, he calls the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin, the, the council, consisted of scribes who were both Sadducees and Pharisees. They were the keepers and the interpreters of the law of that day. There were 70 of them, and the high priest was kind of the ex officio uh, ruler of the Sanhedrin. He's the one who led the proceedings, uh, and you can see from verse 2 that his name is Ananias. Okay? As I said, this is not an official meeting, so they were probably called hastily. They're not dressed in their official regalia, so, so they just look like regular uh, men from the community, except they represent the um, uh, religious and religiously legal authority within the Jewish community. Okay, let's look at verse 1. 
And Paul looking intently. Now you notice there's no introduction. There's no, um, there's, there's no statement. There are no lawyers here. There's no formal charge. Uh, they bring Paul up, and before they can get anything going, Paul opens his mouth and starts to speak. Counsel, brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up until this day. Now, we look at this and think, okay, well, Paul's conscience is clear. What's the problem with that? Because look at verse 2. The high priest says, strike him in the mouth. So there must be some problem with what Paul has said. The problem is, is that Jews of the first century never really had a clear conscience. Never really had a clear conscience. So for Paul to come up and say, my conscience is clear. Now, there, there's two ways of, of looking at this. We'll look at first Paul's way. Paul's way says, my conscience is clear because of the work of Christ. My conscience is clear is because Christ has forgiven me of my sin. Now, we learned in Sunday school, there are three aspects of salvation. There is the past. My sins from all my past are forgiven at the moment of salvation. There is the present. I stand in the work of Christ. My sins are forgiven now. And what about the future? My sins are forgiven there. Okay, because when Christ lays a hold of me and I rest in the palm of the Lord's hand, nothing can take me. Will I sin in the future? Yes. Will I hate that sin? I hope I hate that sin. But I am forgiven of those sins. Now, let's look at the Sanhedrin's perspective. The perspective of the Jewish mind was, remember the Old Testament, you had the sacrifices. And the sacrifices were to atone for what? The sins you had committed, okay? You committed sins, then you had to offer a dove or a lamb or a goat or an oxen, whatever it was, to atone or, or get forgiveness for those sins. What about the sin of the next day? Uh, that wasn't forgiven until you went and did what? Another sacrifice. So your conscience was never really clear. So for Paul to stand up and say, I can stand here and say, I have a clear conscience before the Lord, this was blasphemy to the Jewish leaders of that day. So they say, they turn to Ananias, Ananias says, smack him on the mouth. Okay. Now, I'm sure there have been things that people have said in your life where you wanted to say, smack that person. Okay. Um, well, he turns and he, somebody hits Paul right in the mouth. Then Paul said to him, and this is referred not to the guy who hit him, but to the guy who ordered it, ordered the striking. God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall, and you sit to try me according to the law, and in violation of the law, order me to be struck. Order me to be struck. Well, now just a brief divergence about Ananias in general, uh, so we have some understanding of this. Ananias was kind of a, a, a dicey character, okay, a dicey character. He had been accused of treason about five or six years before this by the Roman government. He was a, uh, a guy who was in the position of chief priest, and he took that position and usurped it for his own power and his own authority. He was a nasty guy, and he especially was nasty to the Levitical priest who worked under him. So he was the kind of, kind of chief priest who would go around and skim off everybody else. Because the Levitical priests, kind of their, their living was made from the offerings, a portion was given to them. So he would come by and he would take his portion. Okay, almost like a protection racket or extortion, obviously. So he was not very well liked. 
And the Jews didn't like him, and the Romans didn't like him. And in fact, uh, the Jews hated him so much that the Zealots went and killed him uh, just a couple years from now because they thought he was too pro-Roman. Okay, So nobody likes him. Nobody likes him. So he says, hit Paul. And Paul's cheek, you can, you can just imagine this, Paul's cheek is still stinging when he turns and says, he says, you're a whitewashed wall. Now, a whitewashed wall, if you remember, um, what does Jesus say about the, the Pharisees? They're like whitewashed tombs, okay? They look good on the outside, but inside is death, okay? He calls him a whitewashed wall. Uh, a whitewashed wall might look good for the time being, but you just don't know the rottenness behind the whitewash, okay? So Paul, but, but Paul's curse and Paul's statement really is appropriate given the teachings from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy, and Ezekiel uses it for those who uh, are false teachers and false prophets. The only problem with Paul's statement was that he made it to an authority, an authority to which he should not have made it. Now, we think um, in our minds, well, gee, Randy, Paul was just saying the truth, and the guy slaps him. Isn't this kind of a natural uh, response to this? Remember how David responded when he was accused by by Nathan. Nathan came and confronted him with his sin. And later in his life, when he made the census and the Lord comes to him and says, you know, you've done wrong, he immediately confesses his sin. He immediately seeks for forgiveness. Um, See, the issue here is in verse 5. Paul says, I wasn't aware that you were the high priest. It's the office. Okay? Ananias is a nasty character, but he's in the office of high priest. So it says in verse 5, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So Paul sees this, and he understands this now. Remember, they weren't dressed in their official regalia, so he probably didn't know who Ananias was. He finds out this, and he immediately you know, repents of his actions. Uh, Lloyd Ogilvie says, it is not our mistakes that do us in. It's our pride that keeps us from admitting our mistakes. Yeah, it's our pride that keeps us from admitting our mistakes. Now, this is a little introduction section, and it's important for us to understand basically the, the first lesson there is if you make a mistake, admit it, seek forgiveness, and move on. Okay? What was, I know this is oversimplification, what was it that brought down Richard Nixon's administration? It wasn't the break in, it was the cover up okay (laughs) i'm gonna hide it okay admit your sin okay seek forgiveness uh and move on okay uh bear the consequence obviously uh but if you hide it that's trouble so let's keep going verse six and following um paul is in the midst and before a group that does not like him that does not care about what he has to say. And really, if they had their way, they would have his death. There were only two things that the Pharisees and the Sadducees ever agreed upon. One, we have to kill Jesus. Two, we have to kill Paul. Because they were trouble. They were trouble. Okay. So Paul looks at this crowd, and he sizes them up. Now let me give you the crowd and, and what they look like. The Sanhedrin's divide into two groups, Pharisees and Sadducees, and among them are priests and elders. And for the most part, the priestly side comes from the Sadducees. 
Now, in Jewish theology, there were Sadducees and Pharisees and Essenes. The Essenes were the guys down at the Dead Sea uh, in the Qumran community. That's where we get the Dead Sea Scrolls from. Okay, and they were kind of the uh, uh, bookworm, monastic, zealot types. So they kind of moved away from society. The Pharisees were the super legalists. They were also the group that believed in the supernatural. They believed in miracles, and they believed in the literal interpretation of the Old Testament. Okay? The Sadducees were the more rationalists. Uh, they threw out the miracles. That's why they were sad, no resurrection. They would be called the liberal theologians of the day. Um, liberal theologians of the day. And as I said, there were only two things they agreed upon. We have to kill Jesus. We have to kill Paul. Apart from that, they disagreed on everything. So here you have two groups that have worked together for years as the ruling council, and Paul is before them. So what's he going to do here? Verse 6. But perceiving that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. Now, what is that going to do? That's going to get half the crowd on his side, okay, because half the crowd is Pharisees. And they look and say, Paul's a Pharisee? And, and his dad was a Pharisee? He's a second generation? He's a legacy, okay? He's one of us. He, this is a good guy. And so they immediately go, well, yeah, I, I like Paul. And the Sadducees are going, oh, I don't like Paul. He's a Pharisee, okay? He doesn't believe like us, okay? So immediately there is this divide, and... And, and it only gets worse in the second half of six because there are few things that you could say to divide this group further. Paul says, I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. Now, the Sadducees, as we know, did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. So the Sadducee, nor, nor did they believe in angels, nor did they believe in spirits. Okay? They, were, they were the non-supernaturalist group within the Jewish community. So Paul says this, and he drops this bomb on them, and he basically he causes a civil war within the midst of the Sanhedrin. Because now you can just get your mind around this. Paul comes and he says, I'm a Pharisee, son of a Pharisee. You all are Pharisees. You all are Sadducees. And he says, and I believe in the resurrection. And this crowd, forget Paul, they're arguing with them because they're saying, oh, this is a good guy. And no, no, and all this, all this uh, disagreement is going on. Now, Paul's confession focuses on the aspect of the gospel that was central to his testimony. Paul, more than anybody else, preached the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So when he comes before the Sanhedrin, it's going to be no different. Okay? It's going to be no different. Let's look at verse chapter 24, verse 15. And this, uh, this deals with the, some of the things in the future as he deals with, with uh, Felix and, and Festus and, and his conversations here in 24 and 26. Look at verse 20, chapter 24, verse 15. Having a hope in God which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So Paul, in his defense later, is preaching the resurrection of the dead. Chapter 26. Turn over to verse 6. So we see that his confrontation with the Sanhedrin is only setting the stage for his next opportunity to testify. Chapter 26, verses 6 and following. 
And now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our twelve tribes hope to obtain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O king, I am accused by the Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? See, Paul gave his defense. And in his defense, he said on the road to Damascus, who did he meet? Jesus. So by implication, by hint, by explicit teaching, we must assume that Paul says Jesus is alive. The only way for that he could meet Jesus on the road to Damascus is if Jesus was alive. Jesus had been crucified previously, so now he must have been raised from the dead. Jesus is alive. That's the key issue in determining really the, the nature of the continuity between or discontinuity between the Jewish faith and the Christian faith. These hardcore Jewish believers, did, they did not hold to the resurrection. When it came to the things of Christ, they just couldn't take. And Paul finds himself on trial for the resurrection of Christ. Now, Paul, he loves this. Okay, he's eating this up because the Pharisees are over here, the Sadducees are over here. Now, just it's interesting, the Pharisees had been fighting against Paul and the claim of the resurrection of Jesus Christ for 30 years. It's about 60, early 60s A.D. here, and they have denied this for 30 years. And Paul stands up and says, I'm here for the resurrection. And, and what do the Pharisees do? Yeah, that's right, the resurrection, we believe in the resurrection. And suddenly they're on Paul's side. Okay, how strange is this? I think they were using Paul for their own uh, agenda here, but whatever it was, Paul is declaring the truth of Christ, risen from the grave. The Pharisees believed in the absolute sovereignty of God. The Sadducees believed in the absolute freedom of the will of men. They were on the opposite spectrum theologically. So Paul lights the fuse. Now, what did he light the fuse with? The truth. Okay? He didn't come in and call them names. He didn't come in and, and challenge them in their character or challenge them in, in anything else except he presented the truth of Jesus Christ. Now understand, the gospel is divisive. We don't have to be divisive. We don't have to come in and try to, uh, you know, make people mad. The gospel will make people mad. Paul just stood up and said the truth, and immediately they were at odds with one another. So Paul here has really turned the tables. He came in as a guy who was accused, and a guy that if this group found him guilty, they, they could have sent him on for terrible things, but he really he turns it to victory. And that's what we see in verse 11. Verse 11 of chapter 23. Okay, there's this great discord. The commander takes Paul off and takes him away, puts him in his cell that night. And in the middle of the night, the Lord comes to Paul. And he says, take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. We've seen earlier that Paul wants to get to Rome. He says, I've got to get there. This is simply the hand of providence in Paul's will to get him to Rome. What waits Paul at Rome? Well, we know death awaits Paul at Rome. Eventually, that's where he's killed. 
Why? Because of his testimony to Jesus Christ. But Jesus comes to him in the night and says, Paul, take courage. For in your faithfulness, as you have solemnly witnessed here, I'm going to get you to Rome, and you will solemnly witness there in Rome. And we understand that uh, it witnessed all the way the Praetorian Guard, the household of Caesar came to know the things of Christ. All of this because of Paul's faithfulness in his testimony to Jesus Christ. Now you might think that Paul, in in our humanness, we might think that uh, Paul might be willing to hear from the Lord uh, in the middle of the night. Paul, you've been such a good servant. I'm going to give you two weeks at the beach. Uh, You can go into retirement now and uh, life will be easy for you. That's not what Jesus says to Paul. He says, you've been such a faithful servant. You have declared the truth again and again and again. I'm going to take you into the lion's den so you can declare the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ there in Rome. And you know what, Paul? It's going to cost you your life. And what does Paul say? To live is Christ, to die is gain. He couldn't wait to get to Rome. He couldn't wait to get to Rome to take the gospel there. So friends, there are times where we need to drop a bomb on people, where there's not time to win friends or influence people. There's not time for subtlety. Sometimes what is needed is the plain truth of the gospel. And it may seem very offensive because some people are in the midst of their sin and they need to be confronted in the midst of their sin. Some people are in the midst of blindness to the things of Christ and they need to be confronted in the midst of that blindness. And it is not our job to offend them. It's our job to tell them the truth. The truth might be offensive to them. The truth might be the the wedge that ends your relationship with a friend, but they need to hear the truth. That truth might also be the moment where they come to understand Jesus Christ, where the longing in their heart is fulfilled, where the time of pain and, and, and terribleness that has racked them for years is healed. And they didn't think it was possible, but you have presented the plain facts of Christ to them. And that's what we are called to do. So let's pray. Lord, we see that sometimes there are opportunities to be subtle, to build bridges and build relationships. Sometimes there are moments where we have an extended amount of time to to aid that relationship to that point where where we might be asked, what is it that is in your life that I don't have? What is it that enables you in the midst of your struggles to be calm and know a joy and peace? Other times, Lord, it is time just to drop the truth on people, that the things of Christ are right, that Christ did come into this world live a sinless life and give that life and was raised from the dead on the third day, that in his sacrifice and in his resurrection, we might know a forgiveness from sins, sins that have held us captive in bondage uh, for years, Lord. And sometimes that truth is painful for those who love their sin, those whose eyes have been blinded uh, all their life to the things of the truth. Shining the light of the gospel can be painful and can cause chaos. It might even sever our relationship with those people. But Lord, that's what the gospel does sometimes. But it is the truth. We pray that we would 
have clarity in how we present it, that we would never purposely present it in a way that would be hurtful or a way that would be harsh, but that we would simply say, this is the truth. And the love of Christ compels me to explain it and to demonstrate it to you. Lord, who is it in our lives that needs to hear these things? Who is it in our world that we need to address with the truth of the gospel? Pray that you would open our eyes to this. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In preparation of the Lord's Supper, let's stand and sing the first two verses of 411, Am I a Soldier of the Cross? 411. As we prepare to come to the Lord's table this morning, I want to be, remind you and remind myself some of the expectations the Lord has for those who belong to Him. The covenant that the Lord made with His people. So I go back to Exodus chapter 20. These should be familiar words to most everybody. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth below or in the water and underneath the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you, sh- you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, your cattle or your sojourner or who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You're his wife or his male servant, his female servant, his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. 
These were the commands that the Lord gave to His people. As they stood at the bottom of the mountain and Moses had gone up and received these directly from the Lord. It was part of the covenant that He made with them. The Lord makes a covenant with us as well. It's the covenant of the works of Jesus Christ. It is His work that covers our sins. It is not our work that covers our sins. It is His work in agreement between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit from before the formation of the earth. It was agreed that it would be the work of Christ that would cover the terribleness of our sin that separated us from our Heavenly Father. The Lord calls us to the Lord's table. He says, do this in remembrance of me. Come and partake of these common elements and in the midst of that I will come to you in a powerful way and my grace will be made known to you. We are supposed to come to the table with hearts that are right, that we have confessed our sin, that we understand the demands that the Lord places upon us, upon believers, but also to understand the forgiveness and the mercy that is there as well. Could you toe the line and be perfect before the Lord? No, we never could. That's why we have Jesus Christ, to cleanse us of our sins, to pay the price for us, but also the Holy Spirit to empower us to live the life that he calls us to. So let's pray. Lord, as we come to the table today, none of us come in a perfect fashion. None of us come in a fashion that we could stand here on our own. We have things upon our hearts that are not right. We have attitudes that are not right. We have words that we have said that have hurt. We've harbored anger in our hearts. We've pursued things that have not been what is right and just and beautiful. Lord, we bring all of these things to you, and we admit them freely, that we are imperfect. And we seek your forgiveness. We pray that your mercy would come upon us, Lord, that we would be able to turn from those things and pursue what is right and what is just and what is beautiful and holy, those things that are pleasing in your sight. Lord, come upon us and forgive us of these things that we might be able to come to your table in a fashion that is right and pleasing to you. Lord, we take a moment and In our silent prayers, Lord, hear our times of confession. Lord, we ask for forgiveness for these things and all the things that we have failed to mention. We want to be able to come to your table to eat and drink mercy and grace and not eat and drink judgment and damnation. So Lord, we pray and seek your forgiveness that we might be made whole in the things of Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Everyone who has professed faith and received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior is invited to come to the table today. The elders will pass the elements among you. Please hold them 
until everyone is served, and then we will partake of them together. So on the night that he was betrayed, after praying, Jesus took bread, and he broke it and said, This is my body given for you. And then in like fashion, he took the cup and said, This is the cup of the new covenant, my blood that has been shed for you. So often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death until his return. So today let us show the Lord's death. Let us be mindful of his forgiveness and his call upon our lives of obedience. Mercies you have provided for us in ways that we could not even imagine. For while we were still in your sin, that's when Christ died for us. And we were without hope. Without any means of reconciliation to you, you acted by sending your son that he should give his life for us that we might find healing and wholeness, that we might find peace and joy, we might find the life that you have called us to. Remind us of these things, Lord, and the mercies available to us through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Let us stand and sing the final two stanzas of Am I a Soldier at the Cross, 411. We ask now that you would send us out, knowing the support of your word, knowing the grace that is available to us in Christ, and that the work you call us to is achievable because you have paved the way. Those people who need to hear the gospel around us, Lord, their lives will be changed because of your mercy and your grace. You call us just to be faithful with what you have done in our lives and what we know from your word. Let the truth of the word change their lives. Lord, come upon us and open our eyes to who we are to share the gospel with this week, that we might act in courage, without fear, total trust in you. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.